Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I help people make friends just trying to make some money. My job is not just anything but educate them. Teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at you, Kramer. The dog days of August are upon us. And that's when earnings season goes out with a whimper, not a bang. I often think it's a shame that more companies don't report this week. There's plenty of time to study and critique and calibrate and make considered judgments because at last, the number of earnings reports that happen each day, they slow to a trickle. So let's see what we have in store with next week's game plan. Now we hear from the Cisco's, two Cisco's, like the two Jake's. The first Cisco, SYY, the giant food distributor, reports on Monday morning. Cisco's important. You see their trucks everywhere, don't you? But I never focused on this company as an investment, just as a barometer of how the restaurant business was doing. That is until Nelson Peltz, the famous insurgent activist, whatever you want to call him, investor, took a 7% stake in the company three weeks, three years ago, and got himself a board seat. Now, this stock's been an incredible long-term performer since then. And I like Cisco very much ever since, since Nelson got on and really made a lot of positive suggestions. And they're working. I, th- I tend to think of him as just as an intellectual investor. Tuesday morning, we get results from Home Depot, and it's hard to recall another time when people were this nervous about this quarter for this great company. Well, why? First, we know the spring was late. The big spring planting season was a bust for many garden stores because the weather was so darn terrible. Take it from this gardener. There was simply no way to plant many areas in the Northeast or, by the way, in the Midwest. Now, that's not enough to derail this great company on its own, but we are also getting some weaker numbers from many of its suppliers. Masco, Fortune Brands Home and Security, Stanley Bach and Decker, they've all been sticking up the joint. Uh, Home Depot stock has been a much better performer than all of those. So there's a feeling that its stock does have to catch up or go down with its suppliers. I think the weather excuse is legit. But given the strength in the stock, well, it could be indeed due for a pullback. Plus, there's a sense among retail aficionados that Home Depot's had the run of the joint um, because Lowe's has been so poorly run. But now that's changing thanks to new management at Lowe's. My view If you haven't in yet, at this point, we'll stay on the sidelines. I'm going to pounce on if Home Depot gets hit. This is one of the greatest retailers of all time. Whenever it pulls back, I think you're getting a gift. Hey, by the way, how about Larry Williams' call on our Tuesday off-the-chart segment to take profits in Costco? Sweet. Now, one of the things that stood out this earnings season is the strength in accessories. Look at that amazing quarter we got from Michael Kors on Wednesday. That was magnificent. We know from the department stores that handbags are hot, hot, hot. So when Tapestry, the artist formerly known as Coach, reports on Tuesday, I think it's going to be very good. I recommend buying some before the quarter and then some after. 
After the close Tuesday, we hear from Canopy Growth. That's a Canadian cannabis company. I find this group fascinating. There are no real blue chips here, but we have to imagine that what's happening with legalization in Canada is akin to the end of prohibition here, and it could result in an explosion of sales when things really get growing. Get, <laughs> you like that? Going. Subliminal. I think Canopy is the best of breed player because Rob Sands, the amazing CEO from Constellation Brands, told us the company had great prospects, and then he bought 10% of it with an option to buy more. That said, the stock's been a dog of late with hot money flowing out of it, betting that the pot trade has gone up in smoke. I think that's premature. Canopy's a full-service player with a tremendous first-mover advantage. I wouldn't be surprised if the stock is charging up to another run at the highs later this year. Wednesday morning, we get results from Macy's. After a monster move earlier this year, the stock's been stalled in recent months, and I want to know why. Does it simply need to digest its gains, or has the consumer switched spending habits again? All I know is this. Every major supplier to Macy's has told us that they're having a bang-up quarter. PVH, Coors, VF Corp saying good things. I'd be a buyer of Macy's if it dips ahead of the report. After the close, we get the biggest earnings call of the week, the second Cisco, CSCO. Chuck Robbins, the CEO is transforming this networking hardware company into subscription software enterprise business focused on security that also happens to sell a lot of hardware. Cisco's metamorphosis has been awesome to behold. Chuck and his team are moving mountains to generate a monster amount of recurring revenue. However, like other companies that have done this, think Adobe, you might have some growing pains through the transition. I expect Cisco will deliver a good quarter. Maybe it won't be the monster grower that some want, but I believe the repositioning of Cisco into high growth mode will take a little time. Be patient. You have to stay in it for the inflection point, which could be right around the corner. Call me a buyer. Tuesday morning, we find out if Tim Collins is right about the trajectory of Walmart stock. On Tuesday night off the chart segment, Collins suggested that Walmart might be on the verge of a breakout, which I have to believe would come from this quarter. I'll say this. It can't be as weak as the last one. Walmart's had to spend a lot of money to stay competitive with Amazon. It needs to be able to lever the bricks-and-mortar aspects of its operations better than it has. That said, its stores, the fundamental of retailing, they look fantastic, and the prices remain divine. Walmart stock has lagged the rest of the retail party recently. You know what? I think it's cheap. I think it's compelling. We get some fireworks after the close. First, Nordstrom reports to say last quarter was a bomb would be putting it way too lightly. It was a nuclear warhead that landed right in your wallet. We own Nordstrom for my chapel trust, and I'm concerned. I worry this has become the gang that couldn't shoot straight, and your best are to avoid it. Now, the company has inspired no one. And while I was thrilled to hear my friend Guy Adami recommend it the other day on Fast Money, the Nordstrom guys always seem to find a way to screw it up. I do admire their consistency in being inconsistent. We also hear from Applied Materials. Now, the last quarter was down, as they indicated that demand had softened. I think the company has gotten their inventories in line, and I don't believe things have gotten worse. In fact, I'm betting that, like uh, with its competitor, Lamb Research, the stock is trying to bottom. We await the conference call for validation. But the Morgan Stanley piece that came out uh, yesterday was a downer. Then the big one for Thursday evening, NVIDIA. Not my dog, but the company. Candidly, as if I'm somehow uh, not being candid the rest of the show. I mean, candidly. I keep hearing uh, whispers of a mixed quarter, partly because of weaker cryptocurrency-related demand, but also because of rivals like AMD winning business. I actually like that the expectations have been reduced here. I just wish the stock would follow suit and kind of cool off going into the quarter. Finally, on Friday, we hear from a company that's at the heart of the tariff and trade issue. Dear, the farmers of this country are starting to squawk that they aren't doing well because of the retaliatory tariffs from our trading partners. And that means Deer's quarter may not be up to snuff. 
There are way too many cross currents here for this guy. That said, though, I think that Martin Rieschenhagen, CEO of the very similar Agco, told a good story when he last came on the show. It's a real tough call. Maybe you, you, you just wait to see what happens. The bottom line, it's almost done. We've almost made it through earnings season. I say good riddance, too much stress. But I, I, I don't forget to look for buying opportunities among the stocks I just highlighted because many of them could be potential winners next week. Let's go to Justin in New Jersey. Justin. Hi, Jim. I want to say thank you to you and your staff. Oh, thank you, man. Thank you very much. Um, when I'm trying to stay diversified and I'm screening stocks, there's sometimes when I like one or two and I'll just pick one stock. Okay. Um, other times there's a handful. When should I start to consider looking at like a sector ETF as opposed to just picking one out of the bunch? Okay. Uh, my feeling is this. I think we're good enough to pick the ones that are good in an ETF, and I don't fear the so-called single stock risk. I would rather use that as a hedge against good companies that we own. I think if you watch the show long, look, we figured out FANG. We created FANG. So I like to think that we can create uh, a lot of good ideas on here that are better than what the ETFs have to offer. Okay, it's almost a wrap on earnings season, thank heavens, okay? And uh, I gotta say, a hearty buy Felicia to this one. Consider buying some of the winners before good news sends them higher. I like this one a heck of a lot, and I like this one too. And of course, stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. The earnings are relentless, but Kramer has burned the midnight oil. And he's ready to run the gauntlet. All week, Kramer sits down with some of the market's most influential C-suite players. Join Mad Money for must-see interviews you can't afford to miss. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely, in context and with perspective, and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today. When there are huge losses in the market, you'll have opportunities to buy good companies with stocks that have become bad because the market turned down. You're going to catch me saying things like, buy broken stocks, not broken companies, which is the kind of saying that doesn't do you a lot of good on its own, unless we put it into a broader market context. In a really serious correction, almost everything will indeed go down. Certainly a lot of stocks that don't deserve to, to will, will decline, right alongside with those that deserve to be lower. So I think the big question is, how do you tell the difference between a broken company that's not bouncing back and a broken stock that could be a golden opportunity. Tonight, I propose to give you a new way to look at stocks during a big sell-off to help lead you away from broken companies and toward the broken stocks that I want you to own. 
What's a broken company? All right, let's approach it like this. Corrections have causes, right? In 2007, for example, we had multiple sell-offs related to a weak real estate market, lots of bad subprime and regular loans, and the collapse of companies that issued mortgages. And then the shellacking taken by everything that, that owned those mortgages, specifically bonds backed by the mortgages. You mixed all those ingredients together, and what you got was a credit crisis. And along with that came your big sell-offs. In the wild summer of 2011, we had a combination of debt ceiling concerns in the U.S., topped off with an S&P credit rating downgrade and liquidity concerns in Europe, which led to a steep sell-off and increased volatility. But that was a nasty one. Same with the endless declines related to the battles between Democrats and Republicans in 2012 and 2013, including the government shutdown and that nasty sequester. And, of course, if you go back in time, we had the meltdown in NASDAQ in, two, in the year 2000, where many stocks just kind of folded up and disappeared. In each of these sell-offs, we had sectors with companies that were immune to the actual cause of the sell-off, like the drugs and foods that rallied strongly after the NASDAQ fell apart in March of 2000. And what an opportunity that was, unless you were mesmerized by the dot bombs of the era. When you find yourself in the midst of a sell-off, look at the companies that caused it. They're probably broken. In 2007, for example, that meant everything touching housing, mortgages, or really any kind of lending. If you're looking at a company that's part of the reason for a correction, you're looking at a broken company. Those companies are directly in the blast zone, and they might be certain to be obliterated. Then there's another group of companies that's not as bad as the first group, but it's still pretty radioactive. These are companies that might not be directly related to the cause of the sell-off, but whatever caused the sell-off should also cause these companies to make a lot less money going forward. Their earnings will be hurt. While banks were in the blast zone back in 2008-2009, almost all the financials became victims because they had invested in bonds that defaulted or came near doing so. They couldn't be owned through the crisis. A company does not break just because its stock goes lower, though. In 2007, a great example would be many of the great infrastructure stocks that would get marked down with everything else in a sell-off, or the oil companies, our agriculture. None of these businesses was going to be directly affected by the credit crisis that caused the correction. That meant the businesses weren't necessarily broken. We saw this again in the summer of 2011, presenting many buying opportunities in companies that had very little to do with the worries over the potential default of the U.S. government, or in 2012 with domestic companies brought down by European turmoil. How can a Mexican restaurant chain like Chipotle get hit off of Italian bonds? Well, it happened. How about all those companies that did no business with the government but got banged down by the government shutdown and sequester? How about the fact that the defense stocks didn't go down because, well, you know what? Frankly, their budgets were pretty good. Now, there was often wasn't a connection to the causes of the sell-off, and yet these stocks get hit. So we need to think about this. And what we did, I came up with something I think will really help you. And I call it the bristol Myers Syndrome. As in, what does that sell-off cause by a Cyprus bank failure or a mess in Ukraine? or a federal shutdown, or an endless Greek crisis have to do with the price-to-earnings ratio of Bristol-Myers? Most likely nothing, which is why it's probably time to buy that quality blue-chip drug company. Go check the chart. It's worked every time since, like, 1983. Put it another way. You don't want to buy the stocks that are leading the decline when you're looking for opportunity to sell off. You want to look for stocks in areas that are independent of what's ailing the market. Even if you think you're approaching a bottom and the worst performers are about to become the best performers as the market reverses itself, that's rarely a safe bet. It's not one I want you to do. Once a company breaks, it's difficult for itself to mend. And that's only more true for sectors which control half of a stock's movement. 
Here's the bottom line. In a sell-off, there will be stocks that have clear reasons for going lower and ones that just get sold along with everything else. The first are broken companies. Avoid them, please, at all costs. The second group are just made up of broken stocks, and that's exactly where you want to be. Still all mad money ahead. The opportunities created during a market-wide sell-off. How to zero in on the stocks worth buying. Then the common practice in corporate America that could be a cause for concern if you're looking to invest. And why you should be worried watching some stocks rally. Yeah, some bad stocks. I'll give you a heads up. Mad Money will be right back. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. Welcome back to the special edition of Bad Money, where I teach you how to navigate so-called market corrections, the brutal declines in stocks that would ordinarily leave us, even the best of us, in tears, if not heading straight for the dirty linoleum floor with only a brief layover at the liquor store to pick up some cheap scotch to wash our troubles away. Now, that's one way of handling a big market downturn, but it's not the way we do it on Mad Money, and especially not for underage. We've been over the big picture stuff, how sell-offs are just part of the process and have to be anticipated, even relied on by every good investor. You know that you have to circle the wagons around what you really like and leave the stocks you're not enthusiastic about in the dust. And I've talked about telling you the difference between damaged stocks and damaged goods when hunting for bargains during a sell-off, which is exactly what you need to be doing. You need to go hunting. A correction is just a mega sale on stocks. No different than what you might find on all kinds of things at your Sam's Club or at Costco any day of the week. But now I want to get a little more specific with the methods to my madness. Tell you about a couple of types of stocks, types that I specifically like to hunt on for days, days that are really down. And the more brutal the sell off, frankly, the more attractive these stocks tend to look to me. First, I like to find stocks that have pulled back from their highs during the sell off. The new high list is always a great place to go hunting if you're looking for good investments. You generally don't end up to the new high list for no reason. But stocks that are hitting new highs also tend to be expensive, or at least they're thought of as expensive. You might love the company and think the stock's a great buy, but just not on the 52-week high list. And this is what big declines were made for. You look for stocks that get knocked off that new high list. They maybe get pushed a couple of percentage points down, maybe even 5 to 7% off their 52-week high because of the market-wide correction. And you're likely to find a lot of very good merchandise. Not all of it's going to be worth buying. Some stocks that come off their highs will be going lower for good reasons that have to do intrinsically with the company. Maybe they're damaged goods. But then there are other stocks that could only be dislodged from that list because market conditions got so horrible that everything went down at once. When you find a stock that actually needs a correction to take it down, genuine Wall Street chippers for a huge decline in the averages, you know what? You probably got something wonderful there. Bye, bye, bye! Not all the time. You'll have to use your discretion for each individual stock. But usually the ones that get knocked from their highs by a correction will be the stocks that recover hardest and fastest from the carnage, unless they're part of the reason for the carnage, meaning a damaged company sits under that damaged stock. And that's not a place you want to go anywhere near. 
That's the first group of stocks I want you to look at while you're out there bargain hunting. You should certainly have at least one stock that's pulled back from its highs on your sell-off shopping list at all times, which is really what I'm trying to teach you to make here. You want a list of stocks that you would buy if the market took a nosedive tomorrow, even if you would ordinarily take a pass on them because they're so darn expensive. That way, when the decline does come, you'll be taking advantage of it rather than just being a hapless victim. There's a second kind of stock to keep your eye on during a gigantic sell-off, and these are stocks that sell with huge dividends. Dividends have become a whole lot more attractive, obviously, to the share price as it goes lower, right? And yield goes higher, stock goes lower. Just like you should be watching the 52-week high list for stocks you'd buy in a downturn, you should also be keeping your eyes on stocks that you would buy if their dividend yields were higher. A market correction will give you higher yields because it will send the stock lower. Pardon me if you know this already. I'm trying to reach everybody, though, including second graders who don't know the difference between a stock and a bond, and three-year-olds who just really like the animal noises. The dividend yield is just the size of the annual dividend, say uh, $1 divided by the share price. Say this is a $20 share stock. $1 dividend divided by $20 share. Well, that's a stock with a 5% yield. As the price goes lower, the yield goes higher. you got to always remember that. Sometimes you have a sell-off that is so severe, you get what I call AHYs. That's accidental high yielders, meaning stocks that didn't ever seem to be dividend plays, but have fallen so hard, so fast that their dividend yield suddenly becomes meaningful, or even a trampoline for a quick bounce back when times get better. And you know what? They tend to get better. I know dividend investing isn't sexy at all, but believe me, when I tell you that nobody ever woke up unhappy the next morning after bringing home a stock with a big dividend, uh, you got to trust me. But especially when you're looking at a big decline, you want to get more conservative. You want stocks that are practically guaranteed to put money in in your pocket And that's what a dividend does, although, of course, remember, there's no guarantees that any stock bounces back. Again, don't buy a damaged company just because its dividend has skyrocketed. If it's a damaged company and not just a stock that's been hurt by the sell-off, then you can bet that company might cut its dividend. Boy, we ought to avoid that, which defeats the entire purpose of hunting for stocks with newly attractive dividends. A good rule of thumb when you're trying to tell if a dividend is truly reliable is by looking at the company's earnings or profit. If the expected earnings are at least twice the size of the dividend payment, then I think the dividend should be reasonably secure. It's a good rule of thumb, not perfect. Some companies, like the telco companies, have giant cash flows, but this will do it for you. Bottom line, a sell-off, it's an opportunity to buy, especially stocks that have just pulled off their highs and stocks with nice yields that have grown larger thanks to the decline in the overall market. These are the best places to bargain hunt in a decline of any magnitude. And I'll be right there alongside you trying to spot them. Let's go to Janet Rose in New York. Janet Rose. Yeah. Hi, Kramer. Hi. Um, long-time listener. I wanted to know how interest rates will affect my dividend stocks. Okay. People will immediately sell higher-yielding stocks when rates go higher. That just happens every time. Why? Because, you know what? Bonds offer more, can offer a more attractive yield with more safety. So you, you swap out the uh, alleged safety of some stocks and go for true safety of bonds. This is the way people think. I personally like growth and I like yield and therefore I would not be a seller of these stocks but it's what happens in the marketplace it always has it's happened since 79 get ready and get be ready and be uh, uh, act accordingly and don't be shocked Jason in New York Jason hey Jim how you doing all right how about you I'm doing great. Listen, I, my question is, I have a lot of friends that do real estate investing for the monthly income. How can I do that same thing with stocks? So basically monthly income with stock market investing. 
Well, you know what? I got to. I have to do a. a uh, I have to do a segment. There's there's some stocks that offer monthly income uh, there. That the ones that I know, I'm actually not that fond of. I've got to find new ones, particularly in the mass limited partnership sector. That's where you find a lot of them. But the ones that were doing it, tend, unfortunately, turned out to be some of the more dangerous ones. Let me revise my thinking. All right, this market presents gifts to you all the time. When there's a huge sell-off, use it to spot bargains to get in on stocks that you should be in at prices that you like. Coming up on Mad Money, when it comes to shopping for stocks, do you dare go up against the all-powerful index funds? I'll tell you how you can get your take on the averages and come out on top. Plus, if you're getting ready to get back in the game, sometimes the warning signs aren't so obvious. I've got all the details on when a rally could be a red flag. Plus, you tweeted, now I'm answering. I'll take some of your toughest questions. Mad Money will be right back. The earnings are relentless, and the schedule is grueling. But Kramer has burned the midnight oil, and he's ready to run the gauntlet to find you a raging bull market. Powerful executives, scores of tough questions. All week, Kramer sits down with some of the market's most influential C-suite players. Join Mad Money on air and online for must-see interviews you can't afford to miss. Now, there's an entire cottage industry of commentators and pundits devoted to telling you that you will never, ever, ever beat the market, that you cannot win. So it's simply uh, better to put your money in an index fund that mirrors the market than to invest on your own. I get that. Now, look, if you don't have the time or the inclination or if it's just too overwhelming, then the pundits are going to be right. And an index fund works fine for me. And you know I believe your first $10,000 should be saved in an index fund. Nevertheless, I also believe you can beat the averages but only if you know what you're doing using the precepts that we teach every night here. And this is particularly important to keep in mind after a sell-off period. That's why I do man money. Why I spend so much time trying to educate you about how stocks and the stock market works. Again, though, as I always say, I want you to be a better investor or a better client. If you can't get advice, you can do it with an index fund. If you can do the homework, feel free to pick stocks after you put away that 10000 and start investing some mad money. If you want stocks but can't do the work, hire a professional, preferably someone with good word of mouth from your acquaintances. They can do the vetting for you. But I'm devoting tonight's show to some of the most important lessons I've learned in more than three decades of investing and trading. And these are lessons that will help you identify opportunities and avoid some of the worst mistakes and pitfalls of investing, especially when times get tough out there on the battlefield. You know what? Right now, I've kind of got a rule that I want to bring back from getting back to even. That was the book I wrote right after the Great Recession. And I think it's going to help avoid you help you avoid getting burned. And that is don't necessarily put a lot of faith in buybacks. I have a sound great, don't they? But they aren't created equally. And they aren't at all a place to run to in a sell-off, even though you probably think it's a nice trampoline underneath, a safety net. In fact, many buybacks disappear when times get tough and can't really rely upon. As we saw when the oils came crashing down, when oil plunged in 2014, a lot of the oil companies just walked away from their buybacks. I used to believe that large buybacks, where companies repurchase their own shares in the open market in order to take them out of the equation, something that reduces the number of shares outstanding and therefore boosts the earnings per share, were almost always worthwhile. And the bad buybacks were the exception. Buybacks like dividends are a way for companies to reward shareholders with their cash, a return to you of the money. But I like dividends more because of the superior downside protection and their preferred federal taxation status. Buybacks over the years, though, have become increasingly popular. Companies have spent about a trillion dollars buying back stock over the last few years. And that's money that I thought would have been better 
being paid uh, right to you in a dividend. Unfortunately, these buybacks have, haven't given us the value we thought they would in many cases. And in some cases, they turn out to be huge wastes of money. So when you see a company with large buyback and a puny dividend, you know what? Let's be a little skeptical. The track record looks better thanks to the huge rally that began in 2009. But in the wake of the 2008 crash, it's still not hard to find companies that squandered their money buying back stock at higher prices, leaving shareholders with nothing to show for the billion spent on buying back stock. But some companies have been a whole lot worse than others. For example, here's a group that I like now, but they spent a lot of money doing the wrong thing, the health maintenance companies. They're a good performers since the Affordable Care Act. They generate a huge amount of cash, but they've always been stingy with that cash, and they've been electing to buy back stock, even as that would, be, uh, would have been you know, a lot better if they'd just given you the great yield that they could have offered. That's the best combination in a market where you have low interest rates and uncertain growth. We've seen the same thing with some of the tech stocks, which buy back stock at absurd uh, play- prices. And you know what? That did plague Cisco for a while, the big network equipment seller, until it decided to boost its dividend, which I think directly led to the stable, higher run that that stock has had. That was a shrewd maneuver. Intel did exactly the same thing. It was buying endless amounts of shares. It really wasn't doing anything. But then an aggressively instituted dividend policy caused the stock to bottom and began a terrific rise. Now, maybe the worst defender out there is Exxon buys more stock than just about any company in the world, but has little growth and much less dividend protection than its fellow oil companies. That's why it is my least favorite in the group. I don't tell people to sell the darn thing. It's got a great balance sheet, whatever. But I like higher dividends and buybacks together. So why do executives seem to like buybacks so much more than dividends? A couple of reasons. Since the company's earnings per share is just its net income divided by the total number of shares, a buyback can be a great way to create the perception of growth. But it's just earnings growth. That's been the case with many of the old-line pharmaceuticals and the consumer packaged good companies. The buybacks magnify what others would be actual anemic growth. That's how you can see low single-digit revenue. You know, in other words, not a lot of growth at all for sales and almost no growth and yet low teens earnings growth from many of these stagnant businesses. Yeah, that's right. The sales aren't doing anything, but because of the buyback series per share go up. Other companies just don't see growth opportunities, so they decide it's worth it to just keep buying back their stock instead. Uh, You know what? I I got an idea. Give it to shareholders and dividends, please. Uh, We want the income. What about the notion that a buyback can help cushion a stock's fall in a bear market by ensuring there's always a buyer ready to step, step in and purchase stock? The evidence says otherwise. Short sellers or just ordinary sellers in a panic can almost always overpower any company's buyback that even if it's trying to prop up its stock, especially as there are restrictions on how many companies on how much stock a company can buy on a given day. Again, a dividend does a much better job by creating meaningful yield support especially in a low-yield environment. Dividends also repel short sellers because short sellers have to borrow stock and they pay the dividend themselves. Remember, they borrow the stock first to sell it short, and whoever borrows the stock must pay the dividend to the real holder. You want futility in buybacks? No group was more aggressive, and I say irresponsible, when it came to buybacks than the banks leading up to the crash of 2008. Buybacks didn't do anything, didn't do an ounce of good. Uh, They didn't hold the stocks up when faced against a rapid-fire onslaught of short sellers that hammered down every bank in sight. As soon as the shorts were armed with a newfound power to bang stocks down over and over again without waiting for a lift, the buyback as support game, well, it was over. Gave you little to no downside protection. 
It's even worse with the banks. They bought back all that stock. And then they had to issue tons more in order to meet the regulators' demands. The, the power to destroy stocks via shorting was granted by the short sellers, by the, uh, granted to the short sellers by the Securities and Exchange Commission when it repealed an old Depression-era regulation called the Uptick Rule, which I remember fondly. That had previously forced short sellers to wait for above-market prices, prices before they could offer stock. You couldn't stop these guys with the biggest buybacks in the world, especially when the fundamentals were deteriorating for some of the largest and the best banks out there. You also see executives try to call bottom in their own stocks by announcing major buybacks, saying, we're putting it to work right here. These attempts at Babe Ruth-style cold shots almost always fail. Turn out to be a big waste of your money. As it turns out, the executives trying to call the bottom often turn out to not understand the way the stock market works. They should watch the show. Or maybe they don't, they don't understand the way their own stock works, at least as well as you would expect, considering they work the company. They pour fortunes into trying to create the appearance of a bottom while their business is still in decline. The rare exception? Apple, led by Tim Cook, which buys back a tremendous amount of stock opportunistically, meaning they're in their own dips. That's what I really want. they got to buy back with a brain. Yes, that's about the best buyback I have ever seen. And it's accompanied by a terrific dividend to boot. That's the combo I want. Of course, it also has the best products manufacturer in the world. That doesn't hurt either. Disney, too, is extremely opportunistic as it bought a ton of stock of its own stock back during the Ebola scare in the fall of 2014 when the stock was getting crushed because people were so worried. Hey, Bob Iger, the CEO, he wasn't worried. He was a buyer. And AutoZone. There's one that's always been a buyer and weakness. Uh, AutoZone is a tremendous buyer of its own stock, and it shrinks the float, and it also has worked, if you take a look at the long-term chart for AZO. The bottom line, buybacks by themselves are no reason to own a stock, and in some circumstances, are actually a reason to sell it. I think you never want to own a stock of a company that's wasting the money it needs to survive on useless buybacks, or even worse, spending money it doesn't even have on an activity as fruitless as repurchasing its stock to call a bottom. And you shouldn't rely on even the largest buyback to help prop up a stock if the situation's dire. The way I see it, these are false signs of health and too often just a darn waste of shareholders' money. They have money's back at the break. So, Booyah, Jim, congratulations on a great show. Mad Money is not a show about picking stocks for you. It's a show about empowering you to think for yourself. This is Bill from New York. Jim, thanks so much. Hey, Jim, this is Curtis from North Carolina. I wanted to say thanks to you for creating Mad Money. Booyah. The man, the myth, the legend. The Wizard of Wall Street. This is Duffy from Philly, and I want to give a good booyah. You are the reason why we do this. Now, after a sell-off, in order for stocks to reverse and move higher, they need to have fuel, the fuel necessary for a rally. And what that fuel, what is it? It's cash! Sometimes the fuel comes from retail investors who are taking their money off the sidelines and putting it to work back in the stock market after the decline. I like that. When money is flowing into stocks with the mutual funds buying in endless waves and the hedge funds desperate to own stocks rather than shorting them, then you're in the land of the thousand bull dances! You don't have to worry about where the fuel for rally is going to come from. You don't, even, you don't need me for certain. That's when everybody seems so, so smart. As long as more and more dough is flowing into the stock market, it's easy to find groups of stocks that can go higher. And when that money's flowing into stocks at the same time as the businesses are turning around, you've got to buy the dips each time they occur. I'll talk about it at night. Don't worry. But it can take a long time for, regu- for regular people to become accustomed to putting their money in stocks again after a serious sell-off. It's scary. Now, with no money flowing into the market or even with outflows, 
you can still have powerful moves in the stocks and sectors that are trying to assert their leadership in the turmoil. But the fuel to make those moves happen can't just come out of thin air. It's money, and it has to come from somewhere. So if people are still reluctant to invest, then the money will simply be pulled out of the least exciting, least interesting groups of stocks as investors swap out of them and swap into the ones with, with power, the sexier names, the ones with more lift. People who own food and drug stocks will happily sell them in order to raise cash. This kind of churning move is called a rotation. And we've seen quite a few rotations since the market bottom in 2009. There's just one problem with rotations. Without new money flowing in, the advance often becomes zero sum and ultimately can and probably will run out of fuel. As soon as the selling, say, in the defensive staples comes to an end, the leaders also run out of steam. There's just not enough left on the sidelines to drive them higher if it comes in. And when investors on the sidelines are still reluctant to commit capital, something even worse can happen. You can get a rally in what I call the wrong stocks. That's right. The stocks that signal slowdowns or even recessions, namely the food and drug names that have been used as fuel during the previous advance. These stocks can become the market's new leaders and all the cash that investors pulled out of them can be poured right back in because the big money thinks another downturn must be ahead or the food and drug stocks would still be going lower. No matter that it just might be because these non-durables are getting so cheap, they represent great value. A rotation could be at hand. I want you to be ready for it. You never really want to see any of the consumer staples roaring higher in a sustained advance where they're the only ones going higher. Because it means people think the economy is going to either get worse or simply stay in awful shape for a long time to come. That's why one of the most horrifying things you can see in the stock market is a powerful rally in the so-called wrong stocks. What are the wrong stocks? I want you to think about Altria, Coca-Cola, General Mills. If that's all that's going higher, that's trouble. The bottom line, there's nothing more disconcerting than watching a beverage or a drug stock happily plow its way higher without any understanding of the damage it's leaving in its wake with the rest of the market. Until and unless there are vast sums of money coming in from the sidelines, you need to be more cautious and less aggressive whenever you see the defensive food and drug names do the job as generals and leaders. Watch the sector leadership to help give you a read on macro sentiment in order to time when to expect more of, more of a sustained rally. In the meantime, look for opportunities to buy high-quality names where the stocks and not companies are broken. And beware of management tactics like buybacks that artificially prop up stock prices only to see those stocks go right down from unstoppable high-frequency bombers. Remember, the coast isn't clear until the vast preponderance of stock groups actually goes higher. And that's when you know it's really safe to go back in the water. And after the huge run we have had in the averages, you know what? Maybe it's something worth waiting for. They have money's back in. 1968, 1969, I remember the NFL and the Super Bowl, how big it seemed then. Looking back on it, it was tiny in, in the fan base then. And I think that's exactly where we are now in gaming. It's just taken off. It started in earnest, you know, six or seven years ago. And the, the growth curve has just been like this. You know, we have one business, our Astro headsets. They've tripled. But there's growing awareness. I think it does help that now cybersecurity has become a topic that no one is escaping from. With crypto mining, the attacker goes in, they're using your IT infrastructure to mine for cryptocurrency. It's almost science fiction. It's happening now. It's on the rise. The great thing is that, of course, pet spinning is a big growth area. As you've mentioned, healthcare is a growing part of pet spinning. Diagnostics is the fastest growing part of pet healthcare. And of course, that's where we are the leader. And we've built that leadership over the last couple of decades by spending 80% of the industry R&D 
and diagnostics and software. Last quarter alone, do you know that we had over 750 firms providing liquidity on market access? Oh. So this is this, we've really widened the funnel so that we've created a real marketplace and not just a one-way street going down limited dealer balance. Well, I'm betting that there's more volatility. If I bet there's more volatility, I think I should bet by owning market access. We just announced a joint venture with uh, Beijing Automotive to design full electric vehicles, and we're going to produce them in a joint plant over there that has a capacity of 180,000 vehicles. There's so many opportunities coming up with autonomous driving, new powertrain electrification, but lots of, lots of growth areas. My fingers are hurt from battling all the trolls, my new trash to troll campaign. If only there was an easier way to answer all the nice tweets. Hey, wait a second, I have a TV show. Let's give my poor hands a break. Give you the answers you deserve. Let's start here with at even after I get it, who lets us know. I let my nose run when listening to at Jim Cramer on at Mad Money on CBC because when I sniffle, I miss something. Well, um, you know, may I suggest that you get some mad money Kleenex. That way you'll be in sync with what I'm saying. Next, is a, at Willing Blam is wondering, at Jim Cramer, are there any benefits to purchasing silver over gold? Hashtag mad money. Not really. There's, silver's a much less worthwhile commodity and it can be found where gold's getting harder to find. And you know I believe that GLD or actual bullion is a good insurance policy that is not paid off in a long time, but you know, sometimes it's good when insurance doesn't pay off. Here's one from at Tiffany Dunn at Jim Cramer. You have jump-started my addiction for investing early on in life. Your invaluable knowledge and energy is inspiring. Thank you. I want you to tweet that every single day for the rest of your life because it makes up for a lot of the trashy trolls that I have to worry about. Thank you for your nice comments. Now, here's an idea from at its M1 Chai one. Why not, right? At Jim Cramer, you should have a short video made on Jim Cramer Reads Angry Tweets against you. That'd be interesting and funny to watch, and we're going to do that. Actually, we're going we're gonna to do that regularly. I think it's, you know, there's a guy who does it on TV. It's very funny. It looks like at Q1US has a dilemma. What to do? What to do? Have enough stocks in the portfolio but too much cash? Can't add the positions without violating basis help? You know what? At ActionAlertsPlus.com, which is my charitable trust, I say, you know what? Then you have to wait. I know it's painful, but you've got to wait. Don't violate basis. Do you know that in 2014 I violated basis and it was not a good year? And I, I principally attribute that to violating basis or at least to not letting stocks come down enough to make the next purchase meaningful. Remember, I like to space out the buys. Here's an idea from at EM Flavin at Jim Cramer. Maybe you could develop tech to charge your Apple Watch from your personal energy level. Hashtag Energizer Bunny. I want one of those self-charging tables. I want one of those the cordless tables from, um, you know, from integrated device, from IDTI. That's what I really need. All right, here's at DMJ43 who says, at Jim Cramer, my financial advisor always warned me about watching the market every day. It's more frustrating than ever. Okay, I like to check in on the market if I were uh, on vacation, whatever, check in. Don't be obsessive about it uh, because that is not what you're trying to do. You're trying to buy good companies with stocks that are good 
at prices you like, okay? And just to watch it all the time doesn't make that happen. Much better to do homework and try to find the next idea. Next is at DressWindler, who's asking me for information on how to do homework better. I just use Google, but I think there are many better techniques. Okay, hashtag mad, uh, mad tweets. I have written whole books about how to do homework. The best one is still real money. But then I would tell you that my most recent one, which is Get Rich Carefully, has a whole segment, whole chapter, actually it's the longest chapter, about how to analyze stocks. I think that can really help. And of course, stick with Kramer. Let's go to, oh my God, let's call my, let's call me. Jim in New Jersey, Jim. He is so happy. The highlighting, the pet. Yes, Jim Kramer, booyah! Booyah! Booyah, Jim. We've all been conditioned to believe that e-commerce is a lot like the Highlander. In the end, there can only be one way. Did you know today is National Cat Day? How am I celebrating? On Wall Street, hair is bad. His response was simple. He said there was a 50% chance that I don't even exist. That I was just a simulation. Help me, Paul Quintanilla. You are my only hope. It's brutal. It's a brutal, full contact sport. From the time the whistle blows, the traders bracing for what could turn out to be a wild session. This is the last play of the game. Markets absolutely getting hammered today. I know it's not easy, but I promise to keep fighting for you. Jim Cramer, leveling the playing field for all. The road is a tough one, but the payoff can be your greatest win of all. Join Mad Money's training camp weeknights. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I'll see you next time. I'm opening up the lines to hear from you, the voices of Kramer, because it's an uncertain time. I want to talk to you. Mr. Kramer, I just want to tell you, you are absolutely, positively fantastic. Thanks for helping us not panic in times like this. The average investor, which we all know and love, you cater to us, and we appreciate that for all you teach us. I am not going anywhere. You shouldn't either. We will get through this together. Kramer has your back. Call 1-800-743-CNBC and let's take on the market together. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.